Hi everyone, it's Kino here. Thanks so much for joining me on Seek Up, the yoga inspiration show. I am so grateful for you and grateful to you for tuning in and sharing this journey with me. I am overwhelmed with how many people come up to me and say that they're really enjoying this type of communication, teaching, and sharing. So thank you so much for being a part of this journey of yoga, this journey of spirituality, this journey of mindfulness, this journey of seeking wisdom. More than anything else, this is meant to support the seeker's journey, meant to support you on the path. If you find this series of teaching really beneficial, the way that you can support this series is to become a member of the Om Stars yoga community and practice. We have decided to make this series free and available to everyone so that no matter where you are in the world, you can get the teachings that will hopefully provide sustenance for the seeker's journey. And for those of you that can become a member and give your support, please know that I appreciate it. And I'll see you on the mat real soon. Welcome, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me for this uh, Dharma talk. It's my pleasure to share this time and space with you. And I hope you all have been practicing and continuing to apply the teachings that we get from the practice into our lives and that the practice continues to inspire you on the mat and off the mat and that there are moments of your life where you can really start to see the impact, the positive impact of the practice. So one of the things that I thought would be very pertinent to uh, kind of have us unpack and take a look at is this exact dynamic of how the practice actually prepares you to meet challenging moments in our lives. So first of all, we should begin by understanding that just because we've stepped onto the yoga mat doesn't mean that we are immediately perfect human beings. Just because we've stepped onto the yoga mat, um, even for many, many years, doesn't mean that all of the difficulty and the struggle is gone. So we want to sort of start off from that paradigm at the beginning that acknowledges the human, the human being that we are and the humanity that has maybe at its core the idea of imperfection, the idea of including dichotomies, meaning that even though we practice yoga, we will be sometimes happy, sometimes sad, sometimes angry and anxious, and other times peaceful and relaxed. And that full spectrum is something that we want to continue to let in. And sometimes the longer we've been practicing, the harder we are on ourselves for actually having the full spectrum of human emotions. There's this idea that, oh, well, you've been practicing yoga for so long, so you shouldn't feel anger anymore, or you should be more peaceful by now. And there's nothing... Uh, that there's, no, there's nothing really that's absolutely true about that. The idea is that we get more comfortable with the totality of our emotions and we can manage what arises a little bit better than what we um, 
you know, than what we did before we started practicing. But it's completely, I think, irresponsible and maybe a little bit delusional to assume that just because we practice yoga, we're never going to feel anger again. We're never going to feel anxious again. We're never going to feel sad or um, troubled again. This is actually not what the promise of yoga is. In fact, if we take a look at our basic human biology, you know, the basics of human biology will indicate that we have the neurobiological system in our brains and in our bodies set up and hardwired to experience pain, suffering, anxiety, fear, anger, all those things are, are sort of within the range of what this body kind of comes with. So we can expect to continue to have various triggers in the environment, continue to awaken the human response of anger, irritation, frustration, all of those sorts of things. The yoga practice doesn't promise to change your neurobiology, doesn't promise to change the kind of, you know, the hardware of the human, you know, being. What the yoga practice does promise is to give us a window into how to manage what comes up, into how to deal with those systems when they begin to be stimulated so that we can understand, um, you know, how, what the impact of what actions we take will happen and what impact the actions we take will will have on on ourselves and ultimately be guided towards potentially changing our actions in certain circumstances or expanding our view of ourselves in other circumstances. So when we think about our yoga practice, to keep the inspiration, to keep coming back to the mat year after year, year after year, year after year, doesn't always look like a dramatic upward trajectory in our journey of asana, nor does it look like an upward trajectory sometimes in a journey of being, you know, more and more peaceful, more and more peaceful. Sometimes, unfortunately, what happens is we go through ups and downs. And sometimes we'll go through a very, very peaceful period. One of the things that the yoga practitioner can do in that moment that would actually be kind of maybe, I don't want to say damaging for the practice, but uh, it's sort of like a like a pitfall that 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 many yoga practitioners make. Is if you go through kind of a peaceful period, we kind of get into maybe a false hope that all the suffering is behind us. You know, we go through a period where it's been really good and we've been able to kind of respond in our daily lives without any anger, without any frustration. We've been able to be, you know, upholding yogic values off the mat in everyday moments of our lives. And we feel, wow, we feel really good. And then, and then there's this kind of hope that, gosh, maybe all the, all those bad behaviors, they're behind me. It's like the moment we think now I'm done. It's like exactly at that moment we get pulled in again. And then we start to, you know, um, experience a little bit of backsliding, a little bit of recidivism. We can, we have a moment where, you know, we, 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 we backslide and we get, we, we unleash our anger on someone and let the, you know, triggered emotional state take us over. We go out into the world and do something when we're flooded, even if it's just self-directed negativity. And then, we kind of create a double negative out of it because now maybe you've been practicing for 10 years, 20 years, and then you experience a, a, a period of backsliding. Then you beat yourself up about it even more. Man, look, 20 years and I'm still doing this. I thought I was beyond it. I can't believe it. And then, it, and then instead of realizing that the practice will always give you ups and downs, and in fact, 
that sometimes your demonstration of a long period of stability gives an, almost like gives a signal to the spiritual being that you are to kind of bring out more struggle so that you can grow. We don't realize that. And we don't realize, oh, this peaceful period made me strong enough to face this deeper obstacle that has come back. Instead of dealing with the superficial level of those past behaviors, now, because it's come up again and I'm calmer and stronger and I can see more clearly, I'm going to deal with the root of the issue. Instead of just dealing with the symptom, I'm going to deal with the root cause so I'm going to dive into the subconscious and I'm going to get down there into uh, the deeper layers of where this uh, pattern, what we call samskaras in the yoga practice, where this has come from. So the spiritual practitioner is not, uh, you know, an Olympic performer or, you know, an Olympic athlete, not a performer, you know, not a, it's not an Olympic athlete. We're not out there competing for the gold medal of spirituality. We're not out there ranking each other on podiums so that we can, you know, sing anthems and things like that. And I'm not disparaging the Olympics in any way. I absolutely love um, high athletic performance. And I think it's extremely inspirational. But our spiritual practice is not an athletic performance. And that's something that's extremely important for us to realize, to constantly understand, oh, I'm developing tools and techniques that I'm utilizing through the asana practice, but the root of what I'm interested in is spiritual evolution. So the moment that asana practice begins to be detrimental to your spiritual evolution, the spiritual practitioner may need to scratch their heads and think, Asana, maybe asana at some moment is not useful and let it go. That's kind of scary to think about. I'm personally very attached to my asana practice. I don't really want that day to come soon, you know, but I do feel like, and I have experienced at some moments that um, there are times when the esoteric state of contemplation that opens up to more kind of I don't know, profound states, rarefied levels of consciousness and awakening, that asana can sometimes be an impediment to actually entering those very soft, subtle, refined states. Now, I'm not able to live in that soft, subtle, refined state. So for me, asana as a tool in my daily life is extremely useful. For example, if I'm triggered emotionally, sometimes sitting in meditation and it's, it's too overwhelming. My mind is too busy. I'm rehashing old thoughts and unable to break the cycle. But if I step on my yoga mat and I start breathing deeply and jumping back and jumping here and doing this complex asana and squeezing this muscle and squeezing that muscle, at some moment, something shifts. And because the activity of asana is very useful for me to simultaneously become present with the emotion while not being overwhelmed by it. For me, in daily life, asana is a very, very, very helpful tool. Maybe there'll be a day, I don't know, where, <coughs> where that rarefied state of consciousness is more present. And then I'd be, you know, at that point, we'll see. But until then, I, I really find deep benefit in the asana practice. Now, I do want to talk to you a little bit about how we approach our asana practice. Many people who don't practice yoga and many people who do practice yoga, for whatever intention, come onto the mat, 
But once you practice for a little while, it's important to revisit your intention. I know so many people that start practice for all kinds of weird reasons. And it really, what I say is it really doesn't matter why you start, but it does matter why you stay. Mm -hmm. So the interesting thing is that we're drawn almost like magnetically, charismatically, energetically towards things that we don't really realize we're drawn towards. So sometimes why we think we're drawn to something is actually not why we're drawn to something. You know, like for me, I, I, I started yoga because I saw a bunch of people doing headstand and I thought, that's cool. I want to do that too. So for me, it was an entirely kind of physical, what I thought was kind of like a physical, I want to do this headstand thing. But what I didn't know is that something in my, in the spiritual being that I am recognized something in that space that I needed. And I can look back now and I can see that I was going through some process in my life where I was searching and that I didn't think that answering the call to headstand was actually my spirit guiding me towards a life path. I just thought at that time, my 19-year-old self was like, headstand, that's cool. Let's go do headstands. Now, I also, and many of you may have heard me say this before, but I also didn't read uh, the schedule very clearly. I just came back at the same time the next day and assumed that it would be the same class. And instead of the kind of like power yoga class that it was where everyone was jumping here and doing headstands and all sorts of rigorous things, I walked into... <clears throat> like a level one Hatha yoga class in the Shivananda tradition, where there was a lot of breathing and lying down and breathing and lying down and relaxation. And I spent the whole class extremely frustrated thinking about when <clears throat> are we going to do that headstand? You know, when? And it never came. And I remember going up to the teacher after and said, you know, I was really disappointed. And she said, why? It looked like you stayed for the whole class. And I thought, oh, was it an option to leave? I didn't know that. Um, but, um, but then and she said, why are you disappointed? And I said, oh, we didn't get to do headstand. And then she explained to me the schedule. Oh, that's the power class. That's on Tuesday and Thursday. You came to the level one Hatha yoga for relaxation class. Oh, Wonderful. And I was 19 and I didn't really like relaxation, to be honest with you. But I left that class and I felt, I felt two things. Number one, I still want to do a headstand. Number two, I was really interested in yoga after that. I went out and I got all these books about yoga and uh, found the Shivananda school, had a bunch of books and tried some headstands. And, you know, um, I didn't realize that that, that, that's, uh, that, that that really was the beginning of me answering kind of a call that was coming from, you know, from my, from my spiritual being into the world. And I feel like everybody who comes into yoga for all these strange reasons, I mean, I hear all sorts of things like I, uh, my doctor said that it would be good for my back pain or, you know, I want to, somebody said, I, I want to be flexible. Great. You know, I want to do a handstand. I want to do a backbend. <clears throat> Someone else I spoke to recently said, you know, that he came to the yoga practice because he wanted to find a date, you know, and he thought, well, it seems like there's a lot of attractive people in the yoga practice. So I thought maybe uh, I could ask one of them out after. And then he said, but, you know, I realized after a few classes that actually it was for me. I know someone else that met a yoga teacher in a, in a coffee shop and he wanted to, he tried to ask her out on a date and she said, no, but you can come to my yoga class and told her, told this guy what time she was teaching. He showed up for the class, didn't get a date, but was still practicing more than 40 years later. <clears throat> now that is some very interesting guidance 
from the spirit, if we think about it. So there's just a being whose presence you're attracted to because we don't know about spiritual attraction, how we're attracted to people who can guide us spiritually. Immediately our mind thinks, oh, sexual attraction. Let me go on a date with this person and feel, you know, physical intimacy and explore that. But actually there was an attraction to the space that that person sort of represented. And then that opened up a whole doorway to practice, which is amazing. So this is why I say, no matter what brought you to the practice, wherever you are now, recalibrate and think about what is my intention to keep practicing, to keep practicing. You know, some people, they just, they come into the practice as a, a day of stretching uh, in, in a repertoire of other physical activities. You know, maybe they do a CrossFit class or and run, you know, do a, a, you know, running on one day, biking on another day, yoga for recovery, and then slowly yoga starts taking up more space. Well, whatever it is, the idea to ask, well, why am I still practicing? Or why has yoga become my main modality? Like, what, what, um, what is it? So one of the things that I want you to unpack and uh, kind of deconstruct in our minds is the idea that we're here for something beyond the physical, um, and to constantly remind yourself of that. Because at first glance, we can get so attracted and caught up in the physicality of the practice and think, oh, I'm here for the physical benefit. We don't want to, you know, uh, push aside or denigrate or, or um, deny the physical benefit. Yes, it is important to have a healthy body. Yes, it is important to have a certain level of strength and flexibility. Yes, our body feels better when we step on the mat and practice. And these are all wonderful things to embrace, wonderful things to um, keep us motivated. But that's not the end of why we come back to the practice. Similarly, if we import or haven't, rather than import, I would say, if we haven't been able to get rid of old frameworks of thinking, those kind of appear in our practice space. So let's talk about some old frameworks of thinking that can interfere with the spiritual journey of the practice. Some of the old frameworks of thinking are this idea of the equivalence of external form with uh, goodness. So sometimes we only judge ourselves to be good when we look good from the outside. And the good is never our creation. So that's what I mean by some old standards that might, where we pick up these ideas of what beauty is. We pick up these ideas of what being good looking is. And then we impose those standards on ourselves. And because we haven't maybe done the work to completely free ourselves from that. Those things pop back up in our yoga practice. I don't know if you've ever tried this, but I certainly have, you know, to catch a glimpse of myself in a yoga pose, whether it's in a mirror. I don't have any mirrors where I practice usually. And then sometimes when I'm traveling, then suddenly there's a mirror and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. You know, and you know, sometimes I get the feeling like, oh, that looks worse than I thought, <laughs> you know? And then, and then the old habit of judgment pops up, you know, the, all the inner dialogue, which just rehashes and repeats the story that's constantly being fed to us about what beauty looks like, what our body should look like, what worthiness looks like. Um, and these things are tied to a specific age, a specific size, a specific, you know, way that we kind of show up and hold our bodies in the world. And so I watch that in myself as well. And when that arises, you know, what can we do? Well, we realize, oh, this thought has arisen. 
what is the origination of this thought? Is it my thought? Do I reject my body in this moment? Or have I, you know, have I somehow accepted judgment of myself by external standards? And then a really good thing for those of you who are teaching to think about is, what would I say to my student in this moment? Because teachers usually step onto the path with great compassion for those individuals who are in their class. So sometimes if we can look at ourselves with the same level of compassion that we would look with the student, that same body that we catch a glimpse of in the mirror and think, oh no, you know, the size or shape, it's not good enough. Oh no, look, the, the fold is falling out of the legging and uh, it didn't used to do that. Or, oh, the midsection is more full than it used to be. Oh, the, you know, there's, uh, there's less muscle tissue than, there, than I'd like or, you know, than it was in the, the image I just saw of someone else on Instagram. Oh, look, flexibility is decreasing instead of increasing. Oh, look, I used to be able to do that. I can no longer do that. You know, oh, I used to be able to, lift up into a handstand and now I'm barely up there and you know and then you then you have play that game of comparison that worships at the temple of kind of um you know youth and worships at the temple of imagery and two-dimensionality and instead of instead of that when we're in the space of the teacher if we have a student that comes up and says something like you know, I'm just really upset. Well, teacher, you probably say, well, why? It's like I went up to a teacher in the first class and said, I'm really upset. I'm disappointed in this class. She said, why? I didn't have any negative body image stuff coming up or negative self-talk. I was just disappointed that I didn't get to do a headstand. Little did I know that the first time I would try a headstand, it would bring up every single experience of negative self-talk that I'd ever had in my entire life, including, you know, everything from just fear of failure to lack of perfection to feeling I was the wrong size, the wrong shape, everything. The first time I tried headstand. So maybe it was actually really good I didn't try headstand in my first class. <laughs> maybe it would have been too overwhelming. I probably went to the right, the exact class I needed to be in. So what would you say if those of you who are teaching, if you had a student come up and say, you know, I tried to do my practice today, but I'm just feeling really frustrated with my body. I feel like it's not the size that it used to be. It's bigger than it used to be. You know, very, some people don't like when the body is smaller, but there are many people that know the body is bigger than it used to be. They're less, they're, I feel less strong than it used to be. I'm less flexible than I used to be. And when I look down at myself in a forward bend, I just don't like what I see. And I feel like I need to come and practice really hard so that I can lose some weight. You know, if you were a teacher, what would you say to your student in that moment? You'd say, well, gosh, I totally understand. We all feel like that. It's so easy to judge our bodies by the size and shape that they are. Remember, we're not here for physical practice. The body changes, just like the seasons change. Part of our practice is to embrace the change. Is it easy? No, right? It's not easy. We try to embrace the change. We don't deny it. We don't say, oh, you know, oh, I love all of this. You have to let it all in. And so you become aware. I'm aware that I'm not, that I'm judging my body in the state that it's in. I'm aware that if I could choose, I would not age this physical body. But, you know, um, this is the reality. Then the teaching says, work with the body you have as you have it. And it's a very uh, simple 
but very deep teaching. And this is kind of what it means to embody your practice, to work with the body that you have as you have it and embrace whatever's coming up with whatever struggles, whatever difficulties, whatever size, whatever shape it is, and then practice what we can think of as complete and total acceptance. So we accept it. I accept this fold. I accept this body that's not lifting up anymore. I love this body that's not lifting up anymore. I love this fold that appears. And it feels, it feels insincere at first, but slowly you retrain. And, and if, if love feels too fluffy for you, then you can use appreciation. And we can always find a couple of words or a couple of things that we can appreciate. I appreciate this body with all its folds and all its softness and its lack of strength or whatever it is that comes up for you. And you can say, I appreciate this because without this body, I couldn't practice, you know? And there's an expression that I've been saying for many years, which is that many people don't even step onto the yoga mat because they don't believe they have the right body for yoga. And they say, well, I just don't have that yoga body. And I don't think I'll ever get it if I keep practicing. You know, I'll never been. And so what, when you, when you think yoga body, I'm sure there's an image that pops up for you. You know, you just, I'm sure there's something that popped into your mind. And some of you may be thinking, well, I'm doing pretty well. Good for you. But many of you are probably thinking, and the next sort of unspoken uh, sort of thing that pops up in our mind, and that perfect yoga body. And then what comes up is, and I don't have it. <laughs> you know, and it's not me. And, you know, let me think of someone else. Oh, it felt, oh, it's like her body. Oh, it's like his body. Oh, it's like their body, but not mine. I don't have the ideal body. And then all the flaws start coming up, you know, and all the flaws. I'm too old now. Oh, my legs are too short. Oh, the legs are stumpy. Oh, the arm is too short. Oh, the, you know, the torso is too long. I can't tell you how many people are telling me that their torsos are too long. My torso is so long. I'm like, for the first time I heard that was, I don't know, more than 15 years ago, but I, it's never something that came up for me. So I had to investigate it. I thought my thighs were too big and my butt was too big and my legs were too short and my arms were too short. But I never really considered the length of my torso. And I was looking at this person who said their torso was too long and I felt like that we had the same length of torso. So I really had to think about it for a little bit and, and then, and then understand that the, that, that I looked at some other people with very long, legs. And then when they did a forward bend, their head only touched their knees. And when I did a forward bend, my head was closer to my feet. And, you know, and both of our spines were like in the, in, the, in a good, relatively good position. So then I understood, oh, I also have long torso. So I could add that to the list. I said, oh, thank you. You gave me one more thing that was wrong with my body. Me too. I'm part of the long torso club. So we can, so we can go down that road, right? And then, and then I realized at some moment, you know, and this again, something I've been saying for a long time is that the perfect body for the practice is the one you have. And what this means is that there's not, there's no one day out in the future where someone's going to knock on your door and deliver you another body. You know, there's no online ordering. You can't order, look, can I get like longer legs on Amazon? And then they come in like a week or something like that with the installation included. We can't order a different body um, from any, anywhere. This is the one we've got. So if you want to do the practice, the perfect body is the one you have with whatever flexibility, with whatever stiffness, with whatever size, with whatever shape, this is, this is it. And one of the things that I, I believe is really important is to differentiate between aspirational, um, like aspirational imagery, something that you see that kind of helps you unlock and believe in potential, and truly inspirational imagery, which is something that you believe you can do too. 
something that's aspirational is like, I don't like, I kind of really like fantasy movies and fantasy stories. And, you know, like I love Lord of the Rings and all of, I just, my husband thinks I'm nuts. Um, but I, he just really, so poor him. He, he does actually, um, watch some of these movies with me. And, 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 and I, I think he kind of liked Game of Thrones, but, um, at least until the end. And, um, so, the, so the reason why I say that is I realize that when I'm watching, you know, Daenerys Targaryen fly on a dragon, that this is aspirational. I think it's really cool, but I'm probably not going to find a dragon and fly on it. You know what I mean? Um, if I'm wrong, I will absolutely stand aside and fly the dragon. Believe me. But uh, uh, but uh, as far as I've seen on this planet, um, the closest thing to dragons that I've seen are green iguanas that eat my plants. Um, so and they don't fly; they just jump uh, and swim. Um, so so that's aspirational. Now, inspirational is very important that you see a physical body of a similar size and a similar shape that you can relate with on a very visceral way so that when you see that human being doing some of the things that you think you'll never be able to do, you see that human being loving their body and maybe maybe sort of dressing their body and showing up in the world in a way where you think, well, you're not allowed to because of the size, shape, or age that you are, then that's inspirational because it offers you a definitive path forward. This is one of the basic reasons why representation is really important when it comes to uh, kind of the imagery around any any practice so that we can really see, oh, it really is for me too. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't do something that no one else with your size or shape has done before. It just means that you need to believe in yourself without that sort of inspirational person that's put the foot on the path ahead of you. And it requires more strength, you know, to believe in something that's never been done before. But what's really cool about humanity is that as soon as you believe you can do it too, we do it too. And this is, uh, you know, this is a pretty common occurrence that has been demonstrated numerous times in the past. And I'll just give you a really simple example of that, which is, I think I've talked about this before, um, but this occurred when um, marathon runners were trying to break the threshold of the four-minute mile. And until the four-minute mile threshold was broken, the entire scientific community all gathered together and said that it was, it was physiologically impossible for the human body to run a mile in less than four minutes. And they produced all these scientific facts that sort of indicated, I mean, if you read the research, it's, um, it's kind of astounding uh, to think that one person looked at all of that and said, you know what? I think I can break the four minute mile. And his coach said, yeah, I think you can too. Let's train like hell, you know? And they did. And the scientific evidence, I mean, I'm not a scientist, but if I've looked at some of it and it's overwhelming. I mean, I would just sort of say like, yes, absolutely. They're the experts, you know, and they're the things like the rate of, uh, the, the rate of energy conversions in the mitochondria of the cells cannot exceed this particular rate. So therefore the amount of pressure that the muscle has to exert on the bones to push into the earth equals, you know, energy equals, you know, this, the, the whole like equations. And they essentially said the human body will break 
and the joints will explode if we run a mile less than four minutes. And it was like, okay. Yeah. And they had like gravitational lines and scientific graphs and exploding joints. And, you know, if you show that to me, I kind of err on the side of caution, you know, like I, uh, you know, if you say, if you show me the statistics of, you know, what cannot, what can go wrong in this, in this activity, I will probably, also I'm not a runner. It's not my passion. I would be like, yeah, absolutely. I'll walk. You know, um, but, right? and uh, so this one marathon runner, he said, I think I can do it. And he trained and he trained and he trained and he, he broke the four minute mile threshold. And now we have like Usain Bolt, who's like, I don't know how quickly this bolt of a person is running around. And the four minute mile is like not a big thing anymore. So as soon as that barrier was broken, everyone else was like, well, if he did it, I totally can too, because they identified with him as a, as a fellow marathon runner and said, well, I was running next to him in the last marathon. If he did it, I can too. And then everybody started breaking the four minute mile. So in that way, we need to differentiate between what is aspirational versus what is inspirational. So sometimes when we look at aspirational things, Instead of it actually kind of opening up our mind to wider potentials, we can actually use it to feed cycles of negative self-talk. And that's one of the biggest dangers of kind of freely scrolling around in the online space is sometimes we come into contact with aspirational images um, and aspirational stories that are, are meant almost to be there as, you know, the, the fantasy myths of whatever community that we're in, which are wonderful. And we think, wow. Oh, and then the next thought is, I'll never be good enough. I'll never be that good. And, and so if we let the aspirational imagery bring us down, it's defeated its purpose. Instead, it can be very difficult then to look for inspirational imagery and think, let me find someone that, 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 that I feel like I'm just like she is or he is or they are. I, I'm, I'm the same as them. And then kind of connect yourself with them and, and, and feel like, okay, then you're strong enough to see the aspirational imagery. Oh, wonderful. And here's what I think is, is, is really important about that is we shouldn't just turn off aspirational imagery because one of the, one of the things that we'll see is that, you know, at some moment you look, you look at the, the next generation of, of people coming onto the planet. And, you know, at some moment that is aspirational. Oh, look, wonderful. Look at the hope that's there. Maybe I'll never see the tree of the seed that they planted, but I'm so happy that they planted it. And, and we can't let that be depressing for us. Otherwise, what is our legacy? You know, then we just end up in a cycle of, you know, bitterness and, oh, I never get to see the tree. I'm leaving the planet. It's horrible. And then, you know, then we'll destroy the planet just out of our own hatred and self-directed and maybe even externally directed um, negativity. So in that way, to really understand, um, to look in the eyes again of the of those who come after us, this prepares, uh, prepares us to see progress, not only in ourselves, but also in humanity, and to embrace what, what is the aspirational hope of, 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 I don't know, of us as a species. And I feel like that is really what, what our practice is about. So we're going to go back to what is your intention in the practice, you know? If we think about that, what is your intention? What, what keeps you coming back to the mat? What keeps you coming back to the mat? You know, is it the intention to grow, the intention to um, evolve, the intention to, um, you know, embrace a different aspect of yourself? Follow that intention continuously and let it keep uh, kind of, you know, growing within yourself. And that intention... Um, 
you know, is with sincerity. And my teacher, Patabi Joyce, said that our intention is one of the key components of a firm and well-grounded yoga practice. So if we don't have intentionality around the spiritual journey, it's just too easy to get caught up in all the, the fun and exciting physical elements of the practice. So my hope for you is that wherever you are in your yoga practice, more than anything, that you keep finding the sustenance to bring yourself back to the mat. That's why I started doing these Dharma talks to give you a little bit of dose of inspiration beyond the asanas and also to create the time where you have to be able to ask any questions or seek any clarity that might be, um, you know, that might be arising for you. So please feel welcome to type a question into the chat or if you want to raise your hand and ask a question, um, I'm here for you now as well. So please feel welcome and I'd be happy to see if I can answer any questions in the, the, the time that we have that's um, remaining. So I, I, I wanted, again, to sort of start off just bringing our intentions together around the practice and giving you what I hope will be a, a dose of light that's shined on your path so that you can, you know, keep practicing. And then to give you the opportunity, as my teacher used to say, to see if there are any doubts. So any doubts? Sarah, are you trying to ask a question? Let me see if I can do something about that. I think, Sarah, I cannot unmute her, but maybe you can. Does that unmute me? Okay. Yes. Very good. Okay. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Hi. I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for um, doing so much stuff online and on Zoom so that we can all get to experience it. Um, welcome. I, um, so I managed to sprain my ankle a couple of days after your amazing Thanksgiving, uh, primary. Um, I was goofing around on a slide in Tulsa and I fell off the bottom of the slide and sprained my ankle pretty bad. And, um, I've allowed that to, uh, stop me getting on my mat and practicing. I've been doing my meditation, but I tried a couple of times to do asana and it just was too uncomfortable. And instead of working around it, I stopped practicing mm. for a couple of weeks um, now. But what I'm finding, your, your, your conversation about why do we come back to the mat, I hadn't really thought about it. I was doing it because I was on a roll. And because I follow you and you say keep practicing, I had that stuck on my door. <laughs> and what I'm thinking now is I've found that I don't manage my day as well when I don't start it on the mat. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like I start the day not liking myself because I haven't put forth that effort. And that dislike of myself then runs over into how I handle I teach at a university so it's it runs over into how I handle the students how I when when they do something that's not very clever um, instead of helping them see why I'm getting angry about it and, and it's almost like now I'm thinking that's what 
I was getting, I didn't even realize that that's what I was getting in the morning. And I, I only do standing series because time is short, but just doing that standing series set the day and made it was okay to go, huh, okay, the student's having a problem. Let's see what I can do instead of the student is being so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I feel I, I just I wanted to say thank you because I feel like, okay, I, I just I have to now, I have to take a deep breath and just get up mm-hmm. and do it and, and get back to it because now I can see what I, I, I thought I was just doing it because it was the right thing to do. Right. And it, but now I'm, I'm, now I'm realizing that part of why I'm struggling, it's the end of the semester. It's always hard, but, but the frustrations and things I think are born from not getting on my mat and not doing my practice properly. Does that make sense? (laughs) Absolutely. No, Sarah, absolutely. hundred percent, you know, and the first thing that I'll share with you is I also sprained my ankle quite horribly over the summer. Um, and I had just come back from, um, Spain and, uh, there were all these star fruits that were falling off of our tree, which sounds so wonderful. And I love fruits and I got so excited. So I ran over to the tree and I was jet lagged and it was kind of the end of the day and picked up all these star fruits. And in my excitement, I didn't observe that there were ants all over the star fruits who also were quite excited about the <laughs> star fruits, um, you know, and, uh, I, I realized that, um, you know, I, I, as I was holding the star fruits, then the ants started to crawl all over me. And then I wasn't seeing where I was going and I stepped in a hole and then the star fruits flew all over the place and my ankle rolled and it was really, really challenging. Um, and it took me like the, the ankle was really swollen and I, you know, had to go and it wasn't, nothing was broken, but it was definitely still, it was very severely sprained and I had to wear an ankle brace and I went immediately into teaching. So, you know, it was very, very difficult. And it's a, I, you know, I was still modifying the practice the two months later. So I think right. it's important to embrace the adaptations and the modifications. Um, Sarah, I'm going to mute you again. Is that okay? Yes, mute me. Mm-hmm. Okay, super. Um, just so there's not the feedback with the audio, okay? Not, not that you did anything wrong just the way Zoom works sometimes. <laughs> um, and, and it's difficult when we have an injury because there's a couple of things that come up. We just think, oh, it, so the, it doesn't feel right is it doesn't feel like what it used to feel, which is very difficult to sit with. You know, I'm used to it feeling like this. I'm used to jumping back in the sun salutations, rolling from rolling over my ankle from chaturanga to up dog to down dog. I'm used to feeling my ankle stable when I go over into triangle pose. And when that's gone, we think, oh, it's not right. So we become haunted. You know, it's like, well, it's Christmas time, right? So it's like we're haunted by ghosts of asanas past, you know? And we're like, oh, what it once was. It's just like lingers out there. All of these images of how perfect it used to be. But when we were doing it, it wasn't perfect. When we were doing it, we were like, oh, I want it to be like this and that. But then when what we had was gone, then suddenly that was perfect. But it wasn't perfect when we were there. And it's like our whole life is passing us by like that. So sometimes injury, especially non-yoga generated injury, 
because you can't even say, oh, I pushed too hard in my practice. You know, you're like, oh, I, I slipped on a slide. I stepped in a hole and now my ankle is exploded. You know, I need uh, you can't blame your asana practice. You can come back and say, okay, well, what can I do today? Maybe I need to practice the standing poses with a chair for support and, and, and use the chair, use the wall. You know, maybe I am definitely not doing lotus position for a little while. Okay. What is my ankle going to be able to do? What treatment am I going to do to supplement the practice? What am I going to, you know, how am I going to step onto the mat and get into that deeper intention? And congratulations on you, Sarah, for recognizing that, that the practice was giving you patience, kindness, and um, compassion, both for yourself. And then ultimately that gets reflected back in the attitude we carry towards the beings that we interact with in our life. At the same time, one of the things that many yoga practitioners can fall into, like a trap that we can all fall into, myself included, is I'm only good enough when I do the practice. So it's this thing of, you know, somehow uh, separating our inherent sense of value from the need to be on the mat while recognizing the benefit of being on the mat. So it's not like we come to the mat to earn our worth, but we recognize that this tool is extremely helpful. This helps me connect in with the goodness that's already within myself, but I'm not here to earn my worth. Because if we're here to earn our worth, then we're only good when we nail that headstand. The practice is only good when we're doing all the poses. So we need to get, get on the mat. Maybe it's yin that day because that's what the body allows. You know, maybe we get on the mat and we do the whole series in a chair because that's what's what we, that's what the body allows. And we embrace the totality of that. And that's, um, that's really, it's important to sit with and important to let us go, let our, ourselves go through that process and, and recognize, oh, there's comparison with the self that once was, and there's comparison with the self that we're afraid we're going to lose because of, you know, this time and there's comparison with others. So as long as we're conscious that this sort of dynamic is going on, I feel we're kind of one step ahead of anybody who doesn't practice yoga because the consciousness is really the key to shifting. And if we can then realize, oh, I'm getting on my mat because I do see it equips me better for the day. Well, great. Let me unroll the mat right now. <laughs> you know, why wouldn't we do that? This is like you go to the dentist and then, you know, you realize, oh, if I brush my teeth twice a day, I, I don't get root canals. Please pass me the toothbrush. You know, it's not like you're earning your worth when you're brushing your teeth, but you realize this activity is extremely good for me. So of course I'm going to do it. Are there days when I don't? Yes. Are there days when you don't brush your teeth? Probably, you know, there, we want to every day. Yes. Maybe you don't do as good of a job, but somehow you stick the toothbrush in there and it does its thing. And then, you know, so in that way we can carry that attitude into our, our practice and just constantly recognize, oh, when, am, when are the days that I'm here thinking I'm earning my worth by being on the mat? And when am I here on the days when I realize this tool is immensely beneficial, but I come from the foundation that I am worthy as I am? And I think that's an important to realize that we'll, there's some days that we'll be on the mat and the old paradigm will be at play and we'll feel like I'm only good enough when I'm doing this, this, and this. And then we realize then if we hold on to that paradigm very quickly, we lose the practice. And then stepping back onto the mat is the way that we challenge that paradigm, the way that we unlearn it. And we realize, oh, I'm good enough, even though I'm on the mat, I'm not doing what I once used to do. Oh, I'm on the mat and all my asanas look different, but I'm still here and that's good enough. 
And so we're, we're, we're actively sort of retraining our behavior and thereby actively kind of unlearning that old pattern that says you're only good enough if you're, you know, meeting all these unrealistic standards, which are really not human in some level. Mm -hmm. And your ankle will heal. So continue to work with the ankle and it will heal. The body heals sometimes slower than we like, but the body heals, you know, I saw a funny, a funny meme about um, ankles in particular recently, you know how the internet is weird these days. You like say something once and then suddenly all these things appear, you know, like you say vacuum cleaner and then like you get like lots of ads about vacuum cleaners, even though you've asked everything not to track, it's just somehow magically appearing everywhere. Um, so I, I guess something appeared about ankle and then I saw this ankle meme that suddenly appeared and had this beautiful image of um, a human body. And it said, you know, human body can produce an entirely new human body in nine months you know, and it went through the whole, like, you know, generation of the fetus and the evolution of one cell divides and becomes many cells and the nervous system and all this sort of stuff. Consciousness comes in. And then the next thing said, um, uh, the human body also, like, slide number two, seven years later, my ankle is never the same. <laughs> you know, and it's like, oh, okay. So, so like the, the body can heal and has amazing potential, you know? And so we just, you know, I, I'm sure it will be faster for you than seven years. And remember the body needs support to heal. This is just pragmatic and practical for me too. I did a lot of, and I find it very useful, um, acupuncture, um, massage therapy, Arnica is really wonderful. If anything is swollen, the classic icing of things can be very, very useful to help keep the swelling down, the inflammation down, reduce the pain uh, very much. So um, if you have a good osteopath that can check the alignment or chiropractor that can check the alignment of the bones, that can be very useful, particularly after a fall or something like that. Um, and all of those different healing modalities, I think, are important to uh, consider in regards to uh, any injuries that arise, particularly in injuries outside of the practice. Mm -hmm. Good. Thank you, Sarah. Really appreciate your sharing and question. And we'll all say a prayer for your healing and, and send you energy to get back on the mat. So we have a little bit more time. Is there a, a second person with a, a question? I don't see anything in the chat, but I do see some thank yous in the chat, which I very much appreciate. If you do have a question, maybe you want to raise your hand and then we can find a way to, un, to, to, to figure out how to turn the audio on and then I see, oh, I do see, Hannah wrote a question. I'll read Hannah's question, meanwhile. So Hannah says, I love your comments on embracing the bodies we have in any moment and practicing gratitude rather than animosity. But sometimes it is just too hard not to be attached to feeling a practice is better when I feel stronger and more flexible. Any advice for the first step, please? So we're not gonna actually be able to change whatever, however we respond to um, however we respond to the practice. So for example, let, let's use your example. You have a practice that feels wonderful. You feel flexible, you feel strong. That feels wonderful, fantastic. It's like a beautiful sunny day when the temperature is perfect and you walk out and there's a breeze blowing in just the right direction and it's not too cool and it's not too hot and the breeze is not too strong and the air is just fresh enough and you feel good. You know, you're not tired. It's a wonderful day. The next day, it might rain. So the key is not about 
rejecting the joy of the beautiful sunny day, which would be the practice where you feel flexible, everything flows, the breath is good, the mind is concentrated, is to recognize the temporary nature of those blissful experiences and then practice non-attachment so that it's totally normal to see and experience something that's wonderful and, and recognize it. Oh, this is wonderful. Oh, wonderful. And maybe rather than adding, um, you know, rather than adding attachment, we can cherish the preciousness of the, the, the impermanence of this. Oh, this practice was wonderful. I'm so grateful for this. It may never happen again. So we realize the temporary nature of it. The danger when we have a practice that we qualify as better is then when we go in constant search of recreating that same practice, thinking that practice is only good when we have that type of practice. So actually, sometimes I feel we do better in our work when practice is kind of hot, heavy, and, and like messy. You know, when we come onto the mat and we can't lift up and we can't bend, we feel extremely stiff and nothing works, but somehow we slog through to the end. And then I feel like it's those days when I somehow feel I've worked with my subconscious mind. Like I've gone in there and I've touched my stuff, you know? And if I was able to, to meet that practice with kindness and compassion, get up off the mat, and I could think, well, this was a good practice also. How was practice? Good. Great. I did it. Done. You know? Then I feel, oh, wow, this is, I'm, I'm really something shifting. But I, I, I learned this, I feel, from Patapi Joyce, you know? You finish the practice, and we used to do what was called pranams. We'd wait to uh, give thanks to him for the practice. And um, you know, we would sometimes do a flower offering or just do a handsome prayer thank you. Some people would touch his feet. But many students would wait to, to do pranam at the end of practice. And he would always look at you when you were about to do pranam. And before you did, he would say, practice finished. And you would say, yes, practice finished. And he would say, oh, very good. Very good. Very good. He never said, good, did you have a good practice? He just said, finished your practice. Practice finished. Finished your practice. You practice finished? Something like that, you know? And as long as you said yes, he would say, oh, very good. Good, good. Good, you know? Um, and it was just, did you do it? That was it, you know? I was always extremely impressed with how there were so many different people doing so many things that looked like you know, wow, look at this deep back bend. Wow, look at this powerful handstand. And, you know, my teachers would just walk around the room kind of like not really impressed, you know, just be like, hmm, hmm, hmm. And then, you know, there's one person who's like not remembering to do revolved triangle. And then that's what they're really interested in. You, 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 no revolved triangle, Trikonasana B. And then they're like really interested in this person remembers Trikonasana B. But then there's like someone pressing up into a handstand, putting both legs behind there, doing all these things. They're completely uninterested. You know, it's like completely unimpressed. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas many teachers would get kind of, oh, wow, you did, wow, really great for you, you know, and what are they interested in? Did you finish your practice? Then, oh, good. Then the excitement. It finished? Great. You finished? You know, because at any moment, there's some kick from within that somehow says, you know what? Let me quit. 
whether it's today or tomorrow or halfway through the practice, we can quit on the asana. We can stop practicing. Like Sarah had the obstacle of injury. So then something in her said, I don't want to do this anymore. Other people, they just get like, you know, just some feeling, some kick from within that seems to say, I don't really want to do this anymore. And what, uh, what we want to just remember is that we just have to keep practicing. Just finish the practice, whatever that means. If it's five minutes, finish the five minutes. That's it. That's fine. If it's 20 minutes, great. Complete the 20 minutes, great. Whatever you did, train yourself to appreciate that. If you see those thoughts coming up that start beating yourself up, oh, I only did five minutes today. Oh, tomorrow I'm going to do extra to make up for what I missed. Just catch yourself. I did five minutes. I'm so grateful. Even if it feels un, like insincere, I'm so grateful that I did those five minutes. I'm grateful for those five minutes. Tomorrow, let me see what comes. You know, it's not a zero sum game in that way of, okay, I'm supposed to practice for an hour every day. If I miss two days, I need to practice for three hours that, um, you know, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't really work. Otherwise we'd have to make up for all the time we didn't practice when we were children. You know, we're just, uh, we're just getting on the mat, doing what we can with the body that we have going forward a little bit each day. And what's, um, what I think is a useful image is that it's either one step forward on the path understanding that the journey is our life or to think about one drop in a bucket and that each practice puts a drop in the bucket and that we're just continually, you know, um, adding to that, 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 that sort of that, that water of life. And, and that we, and this is where we draw our, our inspiration to practice that it's not one and done. We somehow never arrive and, and that's good enough. And somewhere along the way, there's some acceptance of the, you know, the ups and downs of the journey. Well, everyone, thank you so much for being a part of this community. It really means a lot to me. I really love that you're practicing and I'm confident and I have faith in you to continue the practice and to let the goodness that's within you uh, kind of shine out and make your world a better place. We'll continue the Dharma talks uh, and forward. I'm, I'm, I don't know if we have the date and time just yet. I'm traveling to India to continue my practice. I think I leave on the 28th and then get there on the 30th. So it's a, quite a long trip with the time difference. It comes out to a little more than um, more than a day of travel. Um, so once I arrive to India, then I'll be able to sort out the time difference and then we'll have uh, a Dharma talk in January and also in February. So we'll do these monthly. And if you are practicing and anything comes up, save your questions and we will be able to, uh, share space and, and, um, you know, support each other along the practice. So I just thank you everyone. I send you a lot of love and I hope to see you again really soon. And more than anything, everyone, just keep practicing, keep practicing, keep practicing. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. 
So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.